0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 76 of the Talking Fitball podcast. My name's Derek Clark and each week we try and bring you at least one first class interview with some of the biggest characters involved in the game. In the first of two brilliant interviews this week, I had the pleasure of chatting to the hugely talented writer Stuart Horsfield, who's just released his debut book, 1982 Brazil, The Glorious Failure. It's a magnificent read, this, folks, as Stu relives his youth when he was mesmerized by the greatest team never to win the World Cup. He's interviewed key figures. who came up against the iconic side, including the referee from the famous clash with Italy. He tells us what that team meant to him growing up. If you fancy buying a copy of the book, you can find a link in the bio. So sit back and enjoy the latest episodes of the Talking Football Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Talking Football Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to say we're joined... On the line this week by a talented author Stuart Horsley, who's just released his debut book, 1982 Brazil, The Glorious Failure. Stuart, thank you very much for, for coming on and joining us.
1: Oh, Pleasure. Thank, uh, like I say, thank you, for, thank you for asking me. Like I say, I, I don't need asking twice, shall we say, to chat about this team.
0: It's an absolutely fabulous book. I've just finished reading it myself. Um, great era for the, the Brazilian side. But in terms of yourself, um, Stuart, for maybe people that are maybe unfamiliar with your work a bit, can you have a, a little background about yourself and, and what gave you the inspiration to write this?
1: Um, a background about myself, I suppose, it, it's, it's quite strange because the sort of a... Somebody somebody say, Oh, you know, how does it feel to be an author and how this and, and like I say I've never I've never thought of myself as an author and even now I still don't. Um the writing is is purely by one by accident and two uh great fortune and a lot of credit I suppose has to go to um Omar Salim at these football times. Um I, I found I came across these football times purely by accident while I was uh, researching for my masters, um, and I found them by accident. I was supposed to be researching for assignments and I got sidetracked onto the website read what they had absolutely loved it and then realized they put two new ones in every day so that would that became my routine of reading that then I decided was I brave enough to sort of maybe pitch an idea because I was I was writing essays about football anyway uh, in my master's so pitched an idea sort of three or four years ago and I was lucky enough that Omar liked it put it up and from there I've I've never really looked looked back, so it, it's kind of down to the platform that they provided, really. Uh, with regards to the book, <clears throat> it's the, the inspiration has come from you know from being as you, having read it from being a ten year old. It was it was just it was it literally was one of those where, where were you moments. The first time I saw them play it as, as a ten year old kid, I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, never seen football like it. Never seen players like it. Never heard an app atmosphere come across on the television like it and it's just stuck with me all through my life and I've waited a long time for someone else to write the book I suppose it's probably the best way to describe it I could never understand why no one had written one waited and waited and waited and then my friends uh, um, Stephen and Gary have also who we sort of do um, some podcasting with they they'd both written books and I'd felt a bit of a fraud that I wasn't a part of their gang (laughs) <laughs> so I figured I probably should write one and if ever there was a subject um, that I was going to pick, it, it was going to be that team. So I kind of bit the bullet and, and wrote the book as near as I could to what I would have wanted to read if someone else had done it. <laughs> it's the best yeah. way to describe
0: it. Now, um, the Brazil side at that point, before you'd watched them at that specific World Cup, did you know much about... Brazilian team or anything like that sure because I guess it, it football back then was very different in terms of How much we're, we're able to see across the world to what we can do now
1: uh, it was no it, it, it and, and I think I think part of the beauty of it is Is that's why it was such a lasting impression. I mean, I know they played um, They did a European tour in 81 and played England um, and I I didn't get to see that game because um, it was on late and I was, I think I was nine when that and my mum had, you know, I couldn't watch the highlights and I'd gone to bed, uh, well not gone to bed, I'd gone to bed as a nine-year-old, should I guess. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I had the World Cup guides and, and the World Cup guides were obviously full of, you know, who to look out for, who to watch, teams to watch and, and Brazil seemed, there's an awful lot written about Brazil so there was a fair bit of anticipation at, at the time. England hadn't qualified for a World Cup since 1970 so it had been 12 years so I was a I was kind of a, a fully paid-up member of the of the England fan club and was just passing time, really, waiting for England to play. And obviously, Brazil played on the second day of the tournament. Um, and it was an evening game, but I'd already come to an agreement with my mum that I could watch all the games, and these were the rules that I had to abide by. Um, so that the, the fact that I'd, I'd not seen them, I'd read about them, so there was plenty of anticipation there, yeah. ready for watching them. But it was almost like the... The reading and the anticipation actually didn't do justice to what I saw and heard in that game against the Soviet Union. And I think because I'd not seen them and because I'd not really was aware of them as such, it was it made it even better. I think it almost magnified the instant brilliance in, from my perception. A, a lot of what I say today, I am aware, is my perception. <laughs> I get that. But yeah, that that instant brilliance was almost magnified because I'd not seen them before. I'd read about them, but I'd not seen them. Even the even the Flamengo side who'd beaten Liverpool in the Intercontinental Cup in the December of 81, you know, I'd, I'd not seen much of that game. You know, I'd read the reports, because I did used to read the back page of the paper, even as a kid. Um, but I'd, I'd not seen much of, of that game or many of the highlights of that game. Um, so it was still... It was just an instant, almost like an instant fix, um, if you like, of what Brazil, what I thought Brazil must always do, if that was how they played, you know, sort of game one, day two of a World Cup, that must just be what they do. But as as time goes on, you realise that it's not actually like that.
0: What what I really liked about the book as well, I mean, it doesn't just talk about that specific World Cup and uh, and that year, it goes back and and sort of paints a, a picture, doesn't it, and then Describes the story of where it came from, I mean, we're going back to more or less at the '66 World Cup and, and what have you. So um, it gives uh, the sort of reader a, a right idea of, of how Brazil approached that that, that World Cup in Spain uh, on that uh, in 1982.
1: It, it, when when I decided I was going to write the book, and it's, it's ultimately you, you kind of have five games, and that's it. And, you, and I'm thinking, right, I've got to get five, a book's worth out of five games, and then it, and then I thought, well. I need it was almost like I needed the backstory to be able to set the scene for the story if that makes sense so I decided quite early on that I would I would set it in the from that final goal in 1970 so from there it would be the journey from that goal to 1982 because it, it is an incredible journey it's not just one of like I'd like I, said, I assumed it was just brilliant it yeah. was 70 74 78 82 it's what Brazil did but but looking back and researching and reading and watching games, actually, I've never really had a lot of interest in the 74 and 78 World Cup for a host of reasons, but it, it never really caught my imagination. Although I was too young, they'd never caught my imagination to look back on them. And so when I, when I realised what the story was and the journey, how it goes from this incredible high of 1970 to incredible lows in 74, certainly the, the Dutch game in 74, and then... 78 they get closer but they're still not the Brazil that I saw in 82 so I felt it needed it needed the backstory and with the backstory comes like we say 66 which is where almost the the physicality the European style of football that's played in 74 and 78 actually comes from the experiences in 66 so I almost I kind of took it back a little bit further so the context was there for, to almost set the scene for, for 82 and a lot of it is tied in with not just the football but it's tied in with what's going on socially and culturally in Brazil at the time as well with the dictatorship yeah. and but then it it starts to change and, and politics start to change in Brazil in that sort of 80 early 80s it starts to change and the to me it seems that the team symbol symbolized signified what was actually happening in brazil this increased freedom of thought expression spontaneity innovation it it all it seemed to tie in with the arrival of of tele santana's team it had gone from an incredible low in 74 it looked to be getting better in 78 and then in 82 it reaches this for me this peak this pinnacle Mm. and that's kind of what was happening politically and socially in brazil as well so it kind of needed the backstory to, to set the scene for what arrives in 82.
0: Yeah, the, what I liked about it, I mean, you get a right sense of what it meant to you. You personally, Stuart, in terms of, I think we can all relate to picking a, a, a player back in the day and c- pretending we were, we were them in the school playground and out in the park what have you then running the they uh, stick the TV on, they watch the game. In terms of when you were doing that, can you sort of, Real of the excitement when you turned it on and you have seen Brazil for the first time. I mean, it must have been, it must have been
1: something else. It it was, and it's, it's funny because when I, like I say, when I decide to write the book, I know, I know how I feel about this team. As people will, if anybody's heard me ramble on before people know, <laughs> but how I feel about this team, it, it's not, I don't feel it like a, <clears throat> like a 40-something-year-old. I feel it as a 10-year-old still. Yeah. So I decided that it, it had to be done through what it was like as a 10-year-old. If I wrote it as this sort of 47-year-old man <laughs> talking about this Indian thing, think, well, this is a little bit weird. Why hasn't he moved on with his life? But it, it, so I had to go back to this is how they made me feel as a 10-year-old. And so that way it became so much easier to write because I I was just writing it as I remembered it as a 10-year-old and as a as a 10-year-old there was so little football on there was the FA Cup final there was the European Cup final there was the odd England international you know now it's 24-7 pretty much any league you want seven days a week so the, the football that we'd seen was very typically English British football of the late 70s early 80s and then once I'd watched the, the Soviet game and it, it was different from from the moment you heard the crowd. I think that was what struck me first. It it was the noise it was the background noise to the game, that incessant and it drove my mum mad all summer, that incessant drumbeat that that went that rhythmic sort of samba soundtrack that seemed to Literally, be a, a backing track to that whole summer, or what felt like that whole summer. But every every Brazilian game seemed to have the backing track. It was just different to everything else I'd heard. The the game was good. It was a you know it was a good game. And, and but looking back as a ten year old, you only saw the two goal. Or I only remember the two goals that Brazil scored. And obviously, the next morning. You know, in, in the playground, you're you trying to flick up the ball and volley it like, hey, there, did you letting everything run through your legs like Falcao did for that goal. You're trying to score from the edge of the penalty area like Socrates did. And it, it was just an, an an instant affinity with with what they did because it was so different. You know, you didn't see people... Sort of letting the ball through the legs without looking and someone running on and flicking it up with their left foot and volleying it and, you know, within without breaking strides, you know, the keeper not moving. You just didn't see that. So once you'd seen it once, it then became almost like, when are they on next? Who are they playing next? And it was, and it was, it all, it didn't, the world, I love the H2 World Cup and it, it sounds like I'm going to say they ruined it for me. They didn't, but. <laughs> I, did, I almost didn't take notice of anybody else or any other team. I didn't really take a lot of notice of England after that. It all became about, because I am a relatively, not a shallow person, but I am, when it comes to football, I'm all about the aesthetics. Yeah. I, I want to be entertained and I want, something to lo- I want something to entertain me and I want it to look good. And they did that in bucket loads. And so I took no notice of any other team until they went out. And then I kind of took notice of the French and then they went out. <laughs> And, it, and so it, it, it was because they played the, the first three games were on a night time. So you had that, the floodlights, the yellow shirts under the lights, it it, it felt different and it, it looked different. And then in the second round, they go to the afternoon game. So all of a sudden, it was quarter past four kickoff for the Argentina game and the Italy game. And it, like you say, it was literally a, a run home. Um, school finished at quarter to four, you know I had I had sort of half an hour to get home and it. looking back as an adult it, it wasn't a long walk to and from school but it, it felt like it at the time <laughs> you know and I I was so desperate not to miss the build up I didn't want to miss the pundits and it was you know like I say in the book and, and it was it was literally running bag off TV on get get the television on as fast as possible because it took a while to warm up in those days. Let the TV warm up and the, and if they hadn't kicked off and there was it was like Okay, take a breath, you've made it, you've not missed anything. And, and that, was, that was sort of how it felt. And it, it's weird because when I was writing it, it, it felt like there were so many games, but the, like I said, there was five. And, and that was it. Three of them were night games. Two of them were afternoon games. But it, I always felt like I was running home to watch them. But clearly I, I, I ran home twice to watch them. But it just, it just seemed to feel like I was permanently running home to watch football. But I always ran a little bit quicker when, when the Brazilians were on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned as well, uh, it's, uh, your mum and, and, and your sister as well. You, I mean, you, your your mum had no interest in in football, but no. um, she supported <laughs> you. To, she supported you. But y- your sister, did you ever sort of have fights with the t- TV with your sister
1: when when you were running home wanting to watch the game? I, I, to be fair, I was I was really I was really lucky. And and looking back. Actually, I was incredibly lucky. My mum. There was just my mum, like I say, my elder sister, and there was there was quite an age gap. It's quite an age gap. There's um, five or six years. So I was ten, and she was sixteen. Now sixteen-year-old girls in the summer don't want to be in the house. So that was good. Ideal. Uh, my mum was a is a really keen gardener. So and it felt like every day was a sunny day that that summer. And I'm sure it wasn't, but she was always in the garden. So I, I kind of had. The whole of the, I'll say the whole, we had one TV, that was it. But I seemed to have it to myself. And it. And nobody, there was never a time where we would fall out or my mum would want to watch this or that. It was, it, like I say, it was, my mum hates football. She still hates football. <laughs> but the fact that she didn't like it almost worked perfectly because she wouldn't even come and sit in and watch it while it was on. It, you know, she wouldn't make, apart from that, she'd go, oh, that god damn drumpy oh it drives me mad i'm going back out and you'd be like brilliant you you do that and obviously like i say my sister wanted to be anywhere but the house um, as a 16 year old so it was it was almost like the perfect it was the perfect stop i was the right age it was the right team i was in the right i was in the perfect family environment at the time to just absorb the entire tournament and just take as much of it in as i as I possibly could. And, and as I put in the book at the, right at the beginning, you know, I will be eternally grateful to my mum, although she probably didn't know at the time, but it did have massive implications for my relationship with the game and my love of the game and what I value in the game, although it sounds quite deep now, but <laughs> it, looking back it was, because my mum didn't like football, it actually worked out Really, really well, <laughs> and hence why it's dedicated to a, it's dedicated to someone who doesn't like the game, which is quite strange, but was actually perfect as it turned out.
0: In terms of the players, I mean, there's so many iconic players in that side. Of course, um, Zico, though, uh, we need to talk about him. He's a player you you, you wanted to be like. Uh, Stu. um how good a player was he, was he for you, and how? Um, talk us through watching him as, as a young 10 year old, what, what, what it was like marvelling at
1: him on the TV. Uh, um, he was, well, I, I, so we felt like he said, uh, you said, as a kid, you, you know, and I'm, I would like to think that most kids who love football have picked a name at some point in the playground and gone, I'm, whether it's even now, whether it's Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, Kevin De Bruyne, you know, you're hoping that kids still do it. Back then, it, it seemed like everybody did it you know, everybody picked a name as early as you could at playtime, or even in the lesson, you know, you try and sneak your name in early. Mm-hmm. And it, players like, I suppose, like Glenn Hoddle would be the, probably the best example at the time. You know, I would really enjoy watching Glenn Hoddle play because of, what, because of what he did. He was so different to a lot of the other English footballers at the time. And then when Zico played, he, he just seemed to, to be able to do everything um you know adair scores this great goal socrates scores a great goal in that first game but but zico just seemed to have that that something else the the touch the half turn as i've got older i've probably got even more probably even more in awe of him as a player than i what than i was as a 10 year old the way i looked at it as a 10 year old you would watch the game and go right i'm going to get my ball having watched that game what do i want to now go and practice or what do i want to try and do or what do i want to try and emulate and ninety-five percent of the time, it would have been something that that Zico did rather than Socrates or Adair or Junior or Sarais or Falcao. You know, there's low. You know, they they all contributed to the beauty of the side. But you know, Zico. It, you know, the free kick against sorry, the free kick against Scotland is is so perfect. Um, the scissor kick against uh, New Zealand is. You know, it's something I, I had never seen before. Or the sort of the almost sort of Cruyff turn to get away from Gentile at the time you know the Italians defended quite viciously but I had you know I had no real appreciation of who Gentile was but to lose him in a you know in the blink of an eye with that Cruyff turn and then the outside of the foot pass to Socrates for that goal it there was nothing he couldn't do and and because as a kid you you always want to be like a player. You always want to try and do what they do. You always want to try and replicate what you saw on the television. He just seemed to have everything. The stepovers, like I say, the goals, the free kicks, the scissor kick, the pass, the dribble, the, the turns. He, had the, he was the complete player. And like I say, as I've got older and looking back at his career, he's probably even better than I gave him credit for <laughs> as a 10-year-old. As a 10-year-old, I just thought he had all the tricks and looked great. <laughs> But looking back, there was so much to his game and you know and reading about his performance against Liverpool in that intercontinental game that you know for Flamengo, you know, the when you read some of the quotes that the Liverpool players, you know, had from playing against him, and again, you know, in the book I spoke to um Willie Miller, you know, and it, it's almost some of the stuff that was said, not not off the cuff, but, you know, we'd, we'd be in a discussion, I'd be asking set questions, but then he'd just, you know, he would just make comments, you know, about, you know, about Zico and Socrates, you know, and his admiration for Socrates as a leader, you know, you know, he said, you know, as a leader, he was the undisputed leader of that team, you know, through and through. He said, but as a, he said, Zico, he said, you just couldn't get near him, he said, and I can't even explain it, he said, I can't even tell you why or what he did that was so different, but You you couldn't, you just could not get near him. You couldn't. Um, And we talked about it at half time, uh, um, but we were all at a loss even during the game. You know, we just kind of looked at each other and we ended up just shrugging our shoulders. You know, what what do we do here? And they they had no answer to it. And when you hear, you know, international footballers talk about another international like that, it kind of put it into perspective what I thought was was right <laughs> you know what I saw happening on the pitch actually there was internationals thinking exactly the same thing as me which kind of helps. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You mentioned there Willie Miller how uh, how enjoyable was that uh, Stuart getting on doing the interviews um, carrying him out for, for the book and I know that the, the referee for the, the
1: Italian game Abraham Klein as well what was it like speaking to that guy? Uh, well like I say when the I it's funny because I was talking to a friend of mine about writing styles and books and and how you do it and the book that I wanted to read about this team would would have had in it sort of first-hand accounts I wanted to know what other people thought about this team and I wanted to know what people thought who were as close as possible to this side because it's easy to replicate the story and say this happened and then this happened and then this happened and that's fine and it's you know, it's a story for people who maybe never saw them or a story for people who maybe didn't appreciate. But what, what I wanted as a real fan was but what was it like? What was it really like on the touchline? What was it like lining up against them? What was it like to referee? You know, the, that Brazil that almost iconic Brazil Italy game. And so you sort of set out with or set out with a little bit of trepidation. Would anyone want to talk to me? Would I even get contacts of anyone? And it they just kind of not fell into my lap, but I got really lucky quite quickly with a couple of names, and then I found that if you sort of said, "Oh, I've spoken to so and so," then somebody else would be more more inclined to speak to them. The very first person that I spoke to was actually it was purely by chance. A guy that he works at Grimsby Town actually is is head of their um, coach education department, a guy called Colin Walker, and he played for New Zealand, but in from '84 onwards. And I was like, and we got chatting when I was, like, oh, you must have you know, you just missed out on that great Brazil side, you know, chat, chat. And he was like, oh, well, I still played under John Ad's head. And, you know, there's a few players. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is where I might. So I was like, do you, do you have contact details? Do they ever talk about? And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll email John, you know, we, we stay in touch. And so from there, John Ad said, the New Zealand manager was the first guy I spoke to. And he was, he was brilliant. Him and Kevin Fallon, his assistant, they were both great to talk to. So once I'd spoken to them, I could then approach other people and say i've spoken to you know the new zealand manager assistant manager so they'd be like oh okay well yeah i've got 20 minutes or half an hour and so it it you i just kind of needed one and then it opened doors for the rest um willie miller was brilliant incredibly a great sense of humor great sense of humor um was very sort of self-deprecating and (laughs) He called it how it you know, he called it how it was on the yeah. day. You know, there's no dressing, there's no getting around how good um Brazil were that day. David Neri's goal was wonderful and we you know we chatted about David Nery's goal. Um, but he was very, you know, he was, you know, like he said we, we couldn't get near them. He said we were we were chasing shadows all day. Um but a- Abraham Klein was he was probably out of everyone, he was the one. And again, it was really fortuitous how I managed to get a hold of him. But and, but he's, he's you, would, you would argue he could probably referee now. He was, he's so sharp and his mind was so sharp because this sounds awful, but you know, you think, oh, you know, not how much does he remember, that's not it, but nice. you know, the detail, you know, the fine details that I wanted him to go into, but you know, I, I didn't need to worry. You know, he, he just talked me through it. I could have listened to him for hours and hours and hours. Mm. And he just talked me through the game, talked me through, you know, the what happened afterwards, you know, the moment where Socrates, is just stood in his doorway crying, yeah. um, not really knowing what to say. And, and they were the bits that I, I wanted as many of those bits in the book as I could get, because that's what I would have wanted to read. It, it, you know, someone said, oh, you know, write the book that you want to read. Don't try and write for anyone else. And, and that's kind of what I've done. I've, I've just written a book that I would want to read. And then from yeah. there, hopefully other people do as well. But I just I wanted to know what it was like I, I just wanted to know how did it feel refereeing them how did it feel trying to sort of you know as, as the New Zealand manager you know trying to tactically prepare a side to play against them how did it feel being Willie Miller having to mark Zico or Adair or Falcao you know what was it like so it was it was just as many people as possible um and like I say you know I was, I was incredibly lucky I spoke to um Alexander Chivadza, who was the captain of the Soviet side. I spoke to John Helm, who commentated on all the games, Patrick Barclay, who was the correspondent for The Guardian. I I got really lucky really quickly and it and it helped me bring get other people to talk to me, I guess. Um, and then I just kind of rambled on to them as a a 10-year-old again. (laughs) Just tell me, just tell me what it was like. I was desperate to know. And then it was about just making sure that I. You know, I didn't embellish. That was important that I didn't embellish anything that they said. It, you know, I wanted it to be a true representation of what they said and not just take an idea and put my own spin on it. it. It needed to be almost word for word how they told the story because that is how it was, not how I wanted it to be. It had to be how it was.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a team that had such an impact on you. And you mentioned there John Helm. He's, I was lucky enough to get him on the podcast a, a few months ago, and he was actually talking about it. It had such an effect on him. He was—he told me he was absolutely gutted when, when, when Brazil went out. What What, what was your feeling, uh, Stuart, watching that, that Italy game um, at the start? At the beginning, could you contemplate that Brazil could go out that, that afternoon? Did it, did it cross your mind? And, and when it did happen, how devastated were you?
1: No, it, it didn't cross my... I, had, I, was, I was so ill-prepared for them going out. And it's funny because, like I say, it taught me a lot about my relationship. Or it, Sorry, it shaped a lot of my relationship with football. Um, and it's probably still the most devastating defeat in terms of a football match that I've ever had to sit through. And it was, it was purely because it was, it was an instant... I'd spent like say these these sort of five games, you know, it was like oh, the Brazilians are playing it, and it just built and built and built and built. And it and it built to this, it was almost just a foregone conclusion, even then in 82, even as a 10 year old. I can remember thinking, well, these will win because there is no there's nobody even close playing, you know, to that's con- that can compare to them at the moment. Obviously, the French get better, and clearly the Italians get better, but at the time, you know, the, the Italians had scraped through against Argentina, had been poor in the group so going into the italy game it it was just it was it was a hundred percent inconceivable and and what i was kind of pleased about is when i spoke to to, again like you said to john Helm and patrick barkley it was the same the press there was no you know there's this perception that they couldn't defend they had a poor striker a poor goalkeeper but you know they said it kind of none of that mattered they were they were just that good they were that good that they they carried, you know, they could have carried the goalkeeper, they could have carried the strike, Sigidio, uh, they could have carried Perez, you know, they could have carried two wayward fullbacks because they were just that good. And I think the perception was that they would always score more than whoever they were playing against. And it, and it was, and when they, when they went 1 0 down, it was a bit, ooh, okay, because, you know, Italy scored quite early and then Socrates scores and all is well with the world. But, and the problem with the game is Brazil don't, get on level terms for long before they concede again, it, you know, it's this repetition of concede, get back in it, and then concede, and then oh, they get back in it. And at nil, 0 1-all and 2-all, they've qualified, and so they have, you know, they have three chances in this game to go through to the semi-finals. And uh, Paolo Rossi gets his last goal on the 76th minutes, 14 minutes left, and, and you're like, and I can remember as a, as a, as a 10-year-old thinking, oh, this is actually a little bit close now, but it'll be okay, it'll be okay, you know, I, I still had absolute faith, but then the minute the final whistle goes, and it it was a, you know, I you know, put in the book that, you, you know, you can feel the tears, and it, it, they were genuinely there, it was this, but that's it, you know, they've gone, they, they've literally gone, they've come from nowhere, and they've gone for four years, That they've disappeared, and it, and it sounds, which is why I had to write it from the perspective of a 10-year-old and not a 14-year-old. They go, just get over yourself. It, as a 10-year-old, it was that, oh my God, they've gone. They've gone for four years, that's it. I'll, I'll you know, I'll never see them again. It's, you know, it is almost like your, like your first love. You know, they break your heart and they did. It, it absolutely broke my heart that I was never going to see them again. There was, it felt like there was no warning or there was no, it just felt this instant, gone and and like I say and John Helm was to be fair to him was the same he went he said it was horrible he said it felt horrible i felt sick when mm-hmm. the final whistle went and and Patrick Barkley was the same he said it was just quiet it was just well, what what now what you know the, the the tournament's kind of over you know and there's there is you know there's various headlines from different newspapers around the world and you know one of the spanish ones is you know the world doesn't make sense anymore brazil knocked out and it, and, and that's kind of the impact, as extreme as it seems. It, that was the impact they had. That When they went out, everyone just kind of looked at each other and just thought, well, but what now? But yet there were still obviously two semifinals and a final to play. But it, it's like the soul had, had been ripped out the tournament, but yet it still had to carry on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I, can, I can only imagine. And you mentioned there... Um, uh, moving on, four years from then on, c- could you get into Brazil as much, uh, Stuart? From then on, was it? Was it? Did it never reach that pinnacle? Even when they
1: won in '94 and in, in, in 2002, it, it, it's never, it's never the same. And it, and as much as you, you want it to be, and I, and I guess, you know, you're older. You know, things change. But you know, it was almost one of those. Oh, it's great, Brazil are back. But then the team sheet comes out, and you think, oh, I don't know them, and I don't know them. <laughs> And where's why is Zico on the bench? And it, it was just like, oh, it's not. And, and straight away it wasn't the same. It it and it and it wasn't. And I, and again. At at that time, it was. It, I was so disappointed and so. Not not betrayed. Betrayed sounds awful, but I was just so almost miserable that I'd waited four years, but you know, looking back now, it was never going to be the same, you know, they were never all going to turn up again, and all play, and all play the same way, but at the time, it was just like, I can't believe, I've waited four years for you, and this is what you've done, and and in 86, you know, there's there's glimpses of it, you know, obviously, there's there's Josie Mario plays at right back, you know, Socrates scores, great goal, and Karekka's goal is, is so Brazilian against France, and they have another classic game against the French, but it it just wasn't. It just wasn't the same. It, it wasn't. And then, by ninety four, um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm an adult. <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't. You, you kind of don't feel the same way as an adult. But you know, a nil 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 in a World Cup final that goes to penalties. Yeah. The ninety four World Cup is a tournament that I've never, that I always struggled to engage with, even when it was on. I struggled to engage with it. And, and looking back now, it's it's just a tournament that. Almost sits to one side for me. Um, 2002 was was better. Players like Ronaldinho, obviously Ronaldo, you know, an incredible player. Yeah. But that they seemed to be that the transition by then for me into athletes. I don't think the H2 side were. You would never call them athletes. You know, like I say in the book, I call You know, to me they're artists or artisans. By 2002, they're athletes who are yeah. technically very, very good. It, it's all about the artists for me. I am stuck. I am stuck in '82 forever. <laughs> that's my own fault and my own problems. I am aware of that.
0: <laughs> well, it's an absolutely uh, cracking book. A- any any plans to write any, any more books, uh, Stuart? At all?
1: Um. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are. <laughs> <laughs> there are. Um. I well. Oh, i have not. I'm, yeah, I've not really told anyone apart from a couple of people who I ran the idea past. But um, you know, pitch publisher who I write for. There's, I'm. I think. I'm, well, I am. I've signed on to do a book about about the entire tournament. So eighty-two wow. as an entire tournament. Look, you know, obviously as I was researching about the Brazilian side, and and as you actually start to look at the tournament, you know, and there's. Um, there's obviously the Falklands conflict, which sort of sits right at the very beginning. Yeah. You have sort of the rise, you know, of the Italians, the, you know, the French side. You have that incredible semi-final against West Germany, which is arguably a better game than the Italy-Brazil game. You have the horrific um, performance that is, you know, the West Germans against Austria. You have yeah. the phantom whistle between Kuwait and France, and, you know, and, the, and there's, you know, the, the crown prince of, of Kuwait is on the pitch and so much happened in that tournament and it's a tournament that I love because it's the first one that I actually can't you forget all the things that went on that helped to make it a really good tournament so um because of the contacts that i would made for the book it it kind of made sense as I was going along I was thinking I wonder if there's a book about the tournament but I'm, I've kind of left it to one side thinking I just need to get this book done first yeah. and then once I'd finished it it was like oh actually I think, it, I, I think it would make a really good book the whole tournament. So I looked at what was out there and, you know, there's nothing out there really that, that covers the, you know, the tournament in its entirety. So, you know, Pitch were like, yeah, absolutely. You know, we'd, we'd love you to write a book on, on the entire tournament. Okay. So that's, that's where I'm going next.
0: Yeah. Bro, you just touching on the, the, the West Germany-Austria game? Um, was that, did, you, did you watch that on the telly when, when it happened? Yeah. Yeah, what I did do you, it, like, watching that. I mean, <laughs>
1: well, it, it, it's funny because you like say when when you're ten, you don't you don't really appreciate the the politics or the yeah. the backstory or the you know the the intrigue that goes within game. You, you just kind of watch it at, at base value as to what's yeah. being played out in front of you. And, you, and you make your own judgments on it. But I, I can remember thing. I, I loved football, and so like I said, because there was so little football on, I would I would watch anything. I would watch anything and anyone. And I can remember thinking, and I was really mad at myself, thinking, I, I like, I'm not enjoying this. And then I remember thinking, why are you not enjoying this? Football, of course you are. And I can remember having, literally having that conversation with myself as to why aren't you enjoying this? Um, and at the time, it, it just didn't, it didn't seem right. And, it, and I can remember getting, you know, doing other things, which I never did. You know, I never got up and did something else while the football was on, but I can remember not giving the game my full attention. By the second half but obviously the subplot and the backstory only comes out as you get older and you learn about these things and i've read a few articles the really interesting point is the is the perspective of the commentators of the west german and austrian commentators and their attitude when the game was on and their anger and dismay at what was being played out and it's a great story from from their perspectives and that's That's where I'm hoping, you know, with the book, like I say, the book, will, I'm hoping will be the same with the people who were there, the people who, what was it like? You know, and like Abraham Klein was sort of my ideal, you know, the the commentator for the West Germany-Austria game. That's where my my real interest lies yeah. there. And potentially any involvement with the French side from that Schumacher challenge on Battiston as well. They're the two they're the two perspectives that I'm, I really really would like to be able to speak to someone who was there to get what it was really like.
0: Yeah, yeah, but we we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, uh, 1982 Brazil The Glorious Failure is now out, folk wanted to buy a, a copy, uh, Stuart, how did they go about doing so?
1: Um, Obviously you know it's available on in Waterstones, it's available from Pitch Publishing, it's available on Amazon, W.H. Smith, um, I can do, this sounds awful, I can do signed copies. It doesn't sit comfortably with me with this at all, but you can get signed copies from me if anybody would even remotely like a signed copy. I'm I'm okay to do that. I'm just about getting brave enough. Um, And so, yeah, and then um, hopefully there's um, a book signing as well um, at the Classic Kit Shop in in London in Shoreditch um, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, there's, there's going to be some stuff on social media there so there's going to be a, a well covid all being all right yeah. there's um, a book signing planned there whether it still goes ahead at that point or whether it's later on but it, it'll be on social media if you know if people are interested in popping in even if you just want to chat or tell me how wrong i am about that brazil side <laughs> and how good italy were. i'm all right I, i'm more I'm, I'm i'm okay now i'm over it the therapy's helped I could appreciate the italians so yeah there's there's um there's that opportunity as well
0: fantastic if you want to find you on social media there you get um uh, your twitter handle and what have you there
1: yeah it, twitter is is where i hang out I, I don't really use any of the others um well, the 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 name is at loxley misty 44 so it's l-o-x l-e-y m-i-s-t-y 44 it's the name of my two youngest children and my old door number because at the time, I was never going to be, no one was ever going to know me on Twitter or be remotely invested in me and now it's all, oh, that's a bit strange. And it's like, well, yeah, it's just, so I don't forget my kids' names or where I lived. It was that.
0: Good thinking. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on there, Stuart. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh, uh, like I say, thank you so much for, for having me and for giving me the platform to, to, to drone on about what is the greatest team that's ever played the game. (laughs)
0: That well, was episode 76 of the Talking Football podcast with Stuart Horsfield. I hope you enjoyed it as ever. Remember, if you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can catch them all on pretty much all podcast platforms now. Be also sure to check out and subscribe to the Talking Football website. It's talkingfitball.co.uk. If you're on Twitter, you can follow us at talking underscore and we're on Facebook as well. And if you want to sponsor the Talking Football podcast, you can now do so. Just visit the Get Involved page on the website or email us at contact at Clarksports.co.uk. Join me again later in the week for another quality interview. But until then, keep safe and bye for now.